You're listening to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production focused on national security affairs. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. I'm talking to Colonel George Schatzer today, Chairman of the Strategic Research and Analysis Division at the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College, and author of Afghanistan, The Logic of Failing Fast and Slow. In your SRAD Director's Corner series, you review books of possible interest to contemporary military strategists, especially those serving in U.S. Army and Joint positions. The spring issue of Parameters contains the fifth installment of this series, and the focus is on Afghanistan. Thanks for joining us again. Well, thanks as always for having me. I really enjoy discussing these important issues. Each of your articles in the series includes a personal component. You've had direct experience in dealing with the issues and strategies discussed in the books you review. That's true again with the topic of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Yes, very true. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on Afghanistan, but that country and the U.S. war there have factored significantly in my Army career. The terror attacks of 9-11 emanating partly from Afghanistan inspired my interest in national security and strategy and were a big part of the reason I chose to become an Army strategist in 2005. As a much younger officer then, I felt strongly that the so-called global war on terror should have remained centered on Afghanistan and the terror groups operating there. My views on that have changed some over the years, but the issue of our commitment to campaigning in Afghanistan remained the vital question all the way up to the collapse of the campaign in 2021. I was also a student at the Army's Command and General Staff College in 05 and decided to write my master's thesis on proxy warfare, which led me to research and write a lengthy case study on the Soviet-Afghan War of the 1980s and the subsequent Afghan Civil War that led to the development of the foreign terrorist base there. And while I would continue to follow events in Afghanistan closely, it would be another nine years before I actually served there in country. The experience was probably the most difficult of my entire career. That tour really challenged me the most intellectually and was personally and professionally very trying. So an easy question then. Why did the U.S. war in Afghanistan fail? Oh boy, yeah. Joe (laughs) Collins' article in the same edition of Parameters does a great job at answering this, I think. And I offer many reasons why in my article as well. The reality, though, is that the array of problems in Afghanistan is vast, and their nature is just so complex as to almost be alien to us as Americans. But if I had to select the one issue that set up the U.S. campaign for failure, it would be the mismatch in the aims of U.S. political leaders and those of the U.S. military. For the Department of Defense and especially the Army as the lead service in the campaign, there was a deep-seated reluctance to fully commit to a war in Afghanistan. Even years before 9-11, the DOD and the Army actually did a fair job of examining the British and Soviet experiences in Afghanistan and concluding that operating there was a dead end, a graveyard of empires, as the phrase goes. So many books like The Bear Went Over the Mountain by Les Grau, The Bear Trap by Mohammed Youssef, and post-9-11 works like Soldiers of God by Robert Kaplan were very popular throughout DOD and the Army. And all of those books played on the same theme, that powerful militaries go into Afghanistan and cannot deal with the terrain, the culture, and myriad other issues, and only end up wasting years and precious resources. So DOD and the Army planned what amounted to a very large-scale raid of Afghanistan beginning in October 2001, to punish and oust the Taliban and to capture and kill as many al-Qaeda and other terrorists as possible, but critically, to not become so decisively engaged with a large footprint of conventional forces that would only lead to a long-term and aimless campaign vulnerable to failure. But U.S. civilian leadership had a different view. While they recognized what history had to say about major powers entering Afghanistan, 
They were rightly aggrieved by the Taliban's treatment of its people, especially women and children, and the internal violence that had gripped the country since at least the mid-1970s. To U.S. political leaders, 9-11 was proof that a deep commitment to and investment in Afghanistan was needed to end the decades of conflict there and eliminate so-called ungoverned spaces, the underdeveloped and seemingly chaotic hinterlands of Afghanistan that gave bad actors like terrorist groups free range to operate. So while DOD and the Army were thinking in and out with some training to get the new Afghan security forces up and running so that it could quickly take over, the U.S. civilian authority was thinking nation-building, democratization, remaking Afghan society and bringing it into the modern era. This fundamental misalignment of views set the stage for what followed, a never-resolved tension between a realist view, held mostly by the military, and an idealist view, held mostly by the civilian authority. The military, imbued with a can-do, mission, first attitude, dutifully followed orders, but never fully committed to Afghanistan, because it assessed the country was really beyond help. The civilian reconstruction mission was deeply committed to the future vision of Afghanistan, but failed to be clear-eyed about the profound difficulties there. Unfortunately, this created a tendency by both camps to overstate progress year after year. This disconnect in views, aims, and assessments created a dynamic that badly undercut the campaign and made it much less able to deal with the whole host of problems in Afghanistan that it faced. So from a very high-level view, there were serious issues. During your tour in Afghanistan, you experienced how that played out day to day. Could you describe that? Sure. Expanding on what I mentioned in the article, what I experienced even just preparing for deployment to Afghanistan demonstrated the limits of our commitment. Now, I should say that I deployed to Afghanistan as an individual augmentee to the mission, not as part of a deploying unit. The Army's individual augmentee deployment preparation was geared almost exclusively toward training service members for personal self-protection while in country and refreshing on basic tactical soldier tasks. To the extent that there was any training on Afghan culture or on the U.S. campaign, it was barely more than what you might find on Wikipedia or a basic news article. So even as a senior lieutenant colonel at the time, who had done serious study on Afghanistan in the past and did another round of my own professional study before deploying, I still felt grossly unprepared to deal with the tough operational and strategic issues facing the plans team that I joined at the NATO headquarters. On top of that, as I mentioned in the article, the turnover in personnel in the NATO headquarters was tremendously disruptive. Most personnel were on six-month-long tours, with a small minority assigned for a year. In my year-long tour, the plan section had four U.S. colonels serve as the chief of plans. Two different British brigadiers would serve as the plan's director. It seemed every month there was an officer either joining the section, leaving the section, or going on R&R leave. This contributed to a pervasive sense that many were just putting in their time doing their reports, delivering briefings, engaging with Afghans, but at the same time detached from it all as they anticipated the next drawdown or going home. For most of my tour, General John Campbell commanded the mission, and he recognized this short time or attitude and approach. He tried to combat it. He would frequently say, make the days count, don't count the days. Too many individuals were just counting the days. Institutionally, I argue, the Army was doing much the same. That's a major point that Elliot Ackerman makes in his book, The Fifth Act. Yes, he does. He relates how nearly after a decade in Afghanistan that the U.S. Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force headquarters was still made from plywood, a fact noted by our Afghan partners in the observation that, quote, wars are not won with plywood, unquote. Ackerman extends this point to a metaphor in the book. The Afghan army was a plywood army, effective for some things, but foundationally unsound in so many ways for trying to win an actual war. His point, of course, is that our short-timer kind of always partly preparing to leave approach undercut the effectiveness of everything we tried to do. We were always dealing with expedience, trying this and that for quick wins. 
but frequently changing means and methods when priorities invariably shifted as leaders and people passed through the mission. Ackerman recounts how he, like many other veterans of Afghanistan, tried in August 2021 to coordinate the evacuation of former Afghan allies as the Taliban was taking control of the country once again. He describes doing this while on a family vacation to Italy, actually, making frantic phone calls and direct messaging with people to try to arrange passage for Afghans through the chaos swirling around Kabul's airport to get these people on flights out of the country. As a storytelling device, Ackerman doing this while on vacation is a great illustration of how we treated the entire mission in Afghanistan, doing what we could, constantly at the spur of the moment, while trying to get back to what we would rather be doing. What seems so strange to me is the lack of concern or attention the failure in Afghanistan seems to garner from the American public. One really has the sense that after nearly 25,000 U.S. deaths and casualties in Afghanistan, 20 years and over $2 trillion spent, that no one seems to care much. One would think the American people would be demanding more in terms of examining our actions in the war and holding people to account. But it seems we're just not interested. On one level, this isn't surprising. I mean, most Americans were never invested in the war. It was something a small group of volunteers were dealing with in a faraway, backwards country. Americans went about their daily lives. Perhaps they knew somebody that deployed or was hurt in the war, but probably not. On another level, Ackerman worries that the American character has weakened and we're unwilling to hold ourselves to account now. He attributes these to a number of mostly partisan and societal factors that he sees as threatening the very integrity of the United States, and perhaps some of his conclusions are overdrawn. But what really worries me more immediately is that the Army itself also seems uninterested in studying its conduct of the war. We used to pride ourselves as a learning organization, deeply committed to the after-action review process and to professional study. So far as I know, the Army is not conducting any major study of the war. In my list of other books to consider that I include at the end of the article, I mention a two-volume study that the Army published that looks at the war through 2014. The Army really needs to write Volume 3 through 2021. I worry that the Army's unwillingness to learn from Afghanistan is a sign of something lost professionally within the service. What does Tariq Ali's book, The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, add? Well, like Ackerman's book, Ali publishes this collection of his writings very soon after the fall of Kabul in late summer 2021. The collection actually pulls together some of his writings since 1980 on the conflict in Afghanistan and then all the way forward. The subtitle of his book is A Chronicle Foretold, and his writings since the beginning of the Soviet invasion do indeed seem to hit the mark across the decades in nearly every instance. Ali, a Pakistani-British political activist, clearly has an anti-American bias, but it's hard to fault his conclusions about the results of foreign intervention in Afghanistan, since they all unfold much as he predicts over the years. Oddly, the thing that's remarkable about Ali's book is that it really says nothing new about the failures in Afghanistan that many others, including Ackerman, haven't already said. But that's kind of the point. Here's yet another work written over the course of four decades that arrived at the same conclusions as those coming to the subject 30 or 40 years later. For me, it speaks to a fundamental lack of understanding about what Afghanistan is and what we were doing. This is beautifully illustrated in his book in a reprinted series of letters from 2003 between Ali and the UK Minister for Trade, Investment, and Foreign Affairs. In the letters, Ali is hypercritical of what he sees as already abject U.S. and NATO failures, even in year one. The U.K. minister takes him to task, noting that there has been positive progress made. Ali counters that the Soviets claim the same things, while ignoring just how bad the situation truly was. This links back to my earlier point about the split between realists and idealists. 
Both camps turned a blind eye to the true difficulties. The realists were numb to them and so didn't really take any new actions. The idealists would minimize these issues, trying to convince themselves and others that the Afghans were improving their ability to deal with them when they really weren't. Either way, the U.S. never substantially altered its strategy or campaign in 20 years. You make very brief reference to two other books at the end of your article. Yes, The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner and Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Dorner makes a very convincing case that failure is not accidental, that there are real substantive shortcomings in logic and attitudes that cause us to make bad decisions when dealing with complex problems. Similarly, Kahneman's work explains the different logical processes, especially in deliberate and instinctive thinking, that we use in our decision-making and how that often leads us to have too much confidence in our judgment. Neither book is about Afghanistan, but for my money, both books nail the logical failures that contributed to campaign failure in Afghanistan. The point is we have to make deliberate study of our thinking in order to avoid repeating the same mistakes. And again, I don't see us doing this with respect to our conduct of the war in Afghanistan. The DOD and all its services and the U.S. Army are understandably very concerned about building the capability to deter and, if necessary, win a future war with powerful nation states like China. But that can't come at the expense of being ready for wars like we experienced in Afghanistan. Failure to learn from them today will only set us up for failure again. It's always a pleasure working with you. Thanks so much for making time for this today. I appreciate the opportunity to discuss this. Read more about the war in Afghanistan at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for Volume 53, Issue 1. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 